0: So There was a show that I used to watch when Larissa and I lived way up north. It was called Disaster DIY. And the host of the show was handyman Brian Balmer. You might know him. And Brian would go into homes of people who had failed or not finished their own do-it-yourself construction projects. They were in desperate need of some on-the-job training to get the job done. And the premise of the show was that Brian would come along the homeowner, bring them under his wing, and show them how to renovate the the property properly. And I was watching this show, and it became evident that the common problem between all of these homeowners was not the lack of skill. It was rather that people just never committed to actually finishing the projects they started. Many of the applicants on the show had just left their homes unfinished for years, some decades, some multiple decades. They started the project, and then they abandoned it for something else. I went through on Wikipedia and found a list of some of the episode titles to give you an idea of the attitude behind these homeowners. One was called Finally Finishing. The next one was called The Imperfectionist. The Bathroom Cop Out. The Slacking Cider. And the final one, Appalling Apprentice. I remember one show where they were at a cottage, and they had been working on this cottage for years and years and years, and and Brian asked the owner, why did it take you so long to get this done? And the owner said, well, I don't like working more than two hours on a weekend. You see, it, it seems that the homeowners allowed other priorities to get in the way of finishing what they had started. They didn't seem very committed to what they had begun. And maybe that's the reason why Brian actually started another show called Leave It to Brian. Maybe he thought asking people to help them was too much work. He'd rather just do it himself. Now today we are starting a new series in the book of Haggai. And it's not far into the book that we find that the people had given up on their own reconstruction project. Namely, the temple had not been rebuilt yet. But before we get there, we're starting a new book, so I thought it would be helpful to give you a little bit of overview of what has happened in the history of the people up to this point. So as you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai, and as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of a preamble. And as I say that, The book of Ezra and Nehemiah are very helpful as we are reading Haggai. So if you have time over the next few weeks, I encourage you to read those as well. Now, if you remember, God's people had been exiled when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem. And decades later, the Persians actually took over Babylon. And in the year 538 BC, there was a Persian emperor named Cyrus. And he made a decree to let the exiles go back, to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. And approximately 50,000 people went back. We might think that's a lot, but it's not a very large number considering how many people were actually exiled. We have to keep in mind that some of these exiles were in that land in Babylon for 70 to 90 years, so it's obvious that they might have become complacent or used to that way of life and they just didn't want to make their way back. But there were some, as we can read in Ezra 1, that somehow kept the hope of returning to the land on their minds and their hearts. And by the stirring of God, they returned. That's important, remember that, that God stirred their hearts to come back. And when the first wave of Jews returned to Jerusalem in Ezra 3, they got to work. They cleared the rubble of the old temple and they started to rebuild it. First they built an altar, they wanted to get the sacrifices, and they started building the foundation. They were off to a great start, just like a DIY handyman at the beginning of their project. But then trouble started, also just like a DIY handyman at their project. See, Cyrus died, and the neighboring tribes of Jerusalem didn't like that they were rebuilding. So they actually went to the new king and said, Hey, these guys shouldn't be building. They're they're not who you want building in this area. They have a bad track record. And the king, Cambyses, was convinced, and he ordered the work to stop. So they stopped working on the temple. And eventually, the people began complacent. They turned to their own personal affairs, and that initial desire to rebuild the temple had all but stopped. And 16 years later is where we come in Haggai here, when King Darius of Persia is in power, and the people had already settled into this kind of status quo. They weren't necessarily comfortable, but they were grinding out their daily lives, and while the temple remained neglected. So that's the context of what is going on before we even get to this book. The people were initially committed to rebuilding. They were on fire for God's work, but in the midst of opposition and trials, They became complacent, let it slide to the back. It's not that they wanted to set out to disobey God. It was actually the opposite. It was just their priorities shifted over time. And I think we can all relate to that on some level. We want to do the will of God, or we want to see his priorities over our own. At least at one time we did. Perhaps you know someone, or you are someone, who was zealous for God in previous years. But you know, life has moved on now. There's a job, there's a spouse, there's children, there's school, a number of other things, and they take away what we would have given to God. God, in our minds, just slides in the background, even if it's not on purpose. See, Haggai's audience are people like us. So this message in this book is for people like us. Now with that in mind, let's open and start reading. We'll cover all of chapter 1 this morning, Haggai 1, starting in verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? No. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all of their labors. I was studying this message And one commentator made a very, very good point. He said, it's really easy to make the mistake when you're preaching through Haggai to preach it as a guilt-inducing sermon. You could easily just call it, God loves a cheerful giver. And I think we are in even greater danger of doing that, given our circumstance with Leonard just praying for a building project. However, that's not what the message of Haggai is saying. We cannot take the instruction to rebuild the temple and throw it directly into renovating our church. Let me assure you that this book was actually put in the preaching schedule long before this building project ever came underway. But it does beg the question then, why does God care so much about his temple in this book? Why was it such a big deal to God that people hadn't finished rebuilding it? They had an altar, sacrifices were still being made, so why did it matter that the temple wasn't rebuilt? So if we look all the way back to the tabernacle in Exodus or the temple in 1, and 2, or 1 Kings and 2 Samuel, we see that they are places where God chose to dwell among his people. The outward form of the real presence of the Lord, of Yahweh, the personal God among his people. You now I think we often have our, our view of the tabernacle and the temple are a bit skewed. We picture them as places where people could go to meet with God, but it was actually the opposite. They were places where God chose to meet with His people, to dwell with them. The temple was where the presence of Yahweh dwelled, a sign of the greater coming presence. And with the presence of the Lord came the representation of His kingdom. So by refusing to rebuild the house of the Lord, the people were rejecting the offer to have God dwell with them. And at best, they were saying, it doesn't matter really if God lives among us or not. We're okay on our own. For us, on the other side of the cross, God no longer dwells in one specific building, but rather Christ came to be God with us. Emmanuel, he brought the presence of the Lord to the earth. The coming of Jesus brought the inauguration of God's kingdom. And Jesus said that himself in Luke 17. He was being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. And he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that could be observed, nor will they say, look here, it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus said that the kingdom was in their midst of them. He was there because, it was the kingdom was there because Jesus was there. John Piper actually gives a paraphrase of Jesus' words here. He says that Jesus says the kingdom was in the midst of them because he was there. There's no observable signs. It's here because I am here. Jesus brought the kingdom. The presence of God brings the kingdom. And first it was represented in the tabernacle, then the temple, then Jesus. And now, as believers, we are the temple. The Spirit dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Are Ephesians 20, verse 20 to 22. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that temple in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And First Peter helps us understand this even further. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. It's not a temple of stones. It's a temple of living stones, a spiritual house, And the Lord will establish that even further when he establishes his kingdom forever. Revelations tells us that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb will be the temple. There will be no need for the temple. So when Haggai speaks of the importance of rebuilding the temple, it's not simply a building. It It doesn't represent just a building, and we can't say it represents our church building. It's having a relational purpose, a relational purpose with God who dwells with his people to build his kingdom which will bring him glory and honor. So for Haggai's audience, yes, that was building the temple. And for us, we are to build God's kingdom. And so this morning, we want to look at Haggai's instruction that God gave him and how we are to participate in building God's kingdom. Notice firstly, if we're to build God's kingdom, then we need to stop making excuses. As I mentioned, the work of the temple had stopped. But not only had the work stopped, the people started making excuses. God exposed their excuse. He says, these people. These people have said that it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. That was their general attitude. That was what they were saying with their hearts. Why were they saying that? Well, because they'd come up against opposition, legal action even. The attitude of the people must have been, well, if this was really God's will, he would have made it easier for us. If it was God's plan, we could have been done by now. Of course, God wants us to rebuild the temple eventually. He'll just let us know when. must not be now. You know, sometimes Larissa will tell me, hey, it's time to give the kids a bath. And I'll acknowledge her. And she'll come back in a few minutes, half an hour. It's time to give the kids a bath. And they're like, oh, you wanted me to do that today. It's obvious, isn't it? They should have got on building it. When the people said that it's not the right time, they had forgotten that that original call to even come back to the land was God's stirring in the first place. They concluded that the time hadn't yet come and they justified their own priorities, that made their consciences feel a little better. How many times have you heard that? How many times have we said it ourselves? It's not time to do God's work. It's not the right time to witness to my coworker, or, you know, I'd love to help out at church, it's just not the right time, or, you know, I should read my Bible, but, 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 and it just keeps going on. But God called the people out on their excuse, and he calls us out on ours, too, in verse 4. The Lord exposes the flaw in that sort of thinking. He says, is it a time for you, yourselves, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, I've purchased two homes in my lifetime. Both homes had wooden paneling in the basement. So let me answer that question for you. It is never time to panel your home. Don't do it. If you remember one thing, that's it for today. But is it time to build your own paneled houses Well, the Lord's house lays in ruins, it's a rhetorical question. Everyone knows the answer is, of course not. There's some debate on what that word paneled could mean. It could simply refer to that their houses have a roof and the Lord's temple did not. But many scholars believe it's referring to the luxurious state of their homes. These expensive woods can be um, associated with the wood of the temple and palaces in 1 Kings and and Jeremiah. And it seems that yesterday's luxuries were today's necessities. But we can't relate to that, can we? Of course we can. The very fact that we have indoor plumbing is a luxury that far exceeds what royalty would have had just not too long ago. Not to mention our other necessities that we feel we must have in this life. You can almost see it in your minds visually. The contrast would be inescapable. Like a demolished lot surrounded by new houses in a subdivision, the Lord's house in ruins, and the other houses are all renovated and built. And the Lord shows them their lack of true wisdom in the way that they're thinking. The point is that they've been quite happy, actually, to put the same amount of hard work and resources into building their own houses that they could have been using to build the Lord's house. And we fall into that same mistake. Today, so many things compete for our attention. As we pursue our active schedules, other concerns keep us from giving God the time that He deserves. And as a result, our lives fall lives fail, Sorry, and they don't bring Him the glory that they should. Sorry, God, I'd like to spend time with you today, but somehow I'll find time to go out with my friends, or somehow I'll find hours and hours to game online, or somehow I'll, I'll be able to spend hours on social media, plus I have that new girlfriend, plus, you know, there's that show I really wanted to watch. Basically, what we're saying is we have better things to do. Now, don't get me wrong. Many of the things we focus on in our lives are not bad in themselves, do you remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10? Jesus came into their home, and Mary sat and listened to Jesus' teaching while Martha busied herself with serving. In Luke 10, verse, let's go to verse 41. The Lord answered Martha, and he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. See, Martha was focused on good things. She was serving and being hospitable. But they were distracting her from the things of Jesus right in front of her. Jesus also talked in Matthew 6 about our anxieties, worrying about clothes and food and what to wear. And those are many of our excuses, aren't they? And in verse 31 it says, Therefore don't be anxious saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And famous verse, verse 33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, Jesus thought that if we seek the kingdom first, then our needs will be met. Our actual needs, not our necessities, our needs. So really, we're left with no excuses. Every single reason, every single excuse can be exposed and boiled down to prioritizing something above God. Just like Mary, living in contrast, awareness, living in constant, sorry, awareness of Jesus. That's what Mary did. She she put things aside and watched Jesus' teaching. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, that will help us to avoid spiritual indifference and expose how silly our excuses really are. This brings us to our second point. If we are to build God's kingdom, we need to consider our ways. The Lord goes on to tell the people to consider their ways. He says it two times in this passage. What does that mean? To think about what you are doing. To stop long enough in your busy schedule to evaluate your life in the light of what God's word has to say. God had poked holes in their excuses and then he says, take a look around you. Reflect on what your life is like. You're not obeying me. How is that going for you? The first instruction, consider your ways, is in verse 5 and it's a descriptive instruction. It says, take a look at your situation. How are you faring on your own? You've planted much and harvested little. It's almost like saying they were always working. They were like people in our day who take on extra jobs. They work through lunch. They stay late. They do anything they can to try to get ahead in life, and yet they have little to show for it. Verse 6 ends with They have earned wages only to put them in a bag with holes in it. Are you starting to feel the pain of these people? Can you relate to that? They had no fulfillment in any of their hard efforts that they were doing. No matter how hard they worked, they just couldn't be satisfied. Now, Haggai wasn't condemning them for comfortable living. He wasn't condemning. He was only condemning it that it was costing their obedience to God's commands. They were disobedient because they chose to love themselves more than God. It was a heart issue. They knew how to farm. They had seed to sow. They had food to eat. They had clothes to wear. They had employment. They were experiencing. They were not experienced the fullness of God in that, however. It was unfulfilling. Nothing seemed to go right for them. It was disappointing and incomplete. One commentator said, they had the goods, but the good life evaded them. Is that not a picture of our own age, where we are just bombarded with more and more and more and more, and yet we are still unsatisfied? So God calls the people, and he calls us to look at our situation, to consider your ways. And when we consider our ways, we have a chance to look at our lives, and we are challenged to consider whether we are walking with God or not. Are we working hard to get ahead, yet feeling dissatisfied and empty? Are we feeling like we are always running and getting nowhere? Well, thankfully, we don't have to stay there. The next consider your ways is prescriptive. Haggai tells the people how to fix their situation. He says in verse 8, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. He tells them to go out and get the materials that are right there so that he may be pleased and glorified. It's getting on with what God had given them to do, with what God had already provided them with for his glory and not our own. The emphasis here is that the people were to use what's already available to them to get moving on with what was supposed to be happening. For Haggai, that specific situation was to go up the hills and bring the wood and build the house. There were plenty of stones there in the rubble from the destruction of the temple they could use. Ezra 3.7 shows us that they already had the necessary timbers they needed. And anything else could be found in the hills around them. In our context, it's to set proper priorities. To put the things of God first in our lives. To stop saying, the time has not yet come. But look around us. Consider your ways. Take action with what God has given you, where God has put you. We have to stop thinking that we need, need, need in order to serve God. But what has he already provided? But we like to be prepared, don't we? We have things that we think we need in order to be prepared for a task. And one perfect example is becoming a parent for the first time. You know, young couples, before they have kids, they want to have all their ducks in a row. They want to have a career, want to have a house, want to have a car. And even when all those things are checked, there's a new list that comes to be prepared. Okay, we need a baby gate. Okay, we need a baby monitor. Okay, we need a baby crib. Okay, we need baby soap. Okay, baby, baby, baby. We need baby stuff. But what do all parents know? You will never have everything you need to be prepared for that baby coming into your life. You just need to take it one step at a time to trust God and what He's called you to do as a parent. And similarly, here, God says, get on with it. Stop making excuses. You have everything you need. Go get started. Next, we find the reason behind the negative results they have had in their efforts in verses 9 to 11. You know, actions have consequences. It sounds like a message my parents would tell me. Actions have consequences, but they do. See, the people's distress was, in fact, a consequence of their own priorities, because God's house was in ruins. And because of that, God had summoned these things that caused their work to be futile, God warned them about it in Deuteronomy 11, where he said that if the people obey God, then he will bring rain and ensure their success. But God will withhold the rain if people are disobedient. And Haggai bluntly lays the blame for this lack of fulfillment on the fact that the temple was lying in ruins. The therefore isn't because their farming methods were flawed. It wasn't because the market forces crashed. It was God who caused these things. God caused those things to happen. He says, I blew it away. I called a drought. And many people would say, oh, God would never do that. But guess what? It's right here in Scripture. Haggai's worldview is that an all-powerful and almighty God is all-powerful in all areas, even nature, even financial, even practical. Do we believe that? This passage serves to point us to Christ as it reminds us that we, like the Israelites, are guilty of disobedience and we're under that wrath of God. But because of Christ's sacrifice in our place, redemption is available. It's by grace we could be saved. So God's response to, to their disregard of his house was to send emptiness on their lives so that his people might realize the idolatry and turn back to him. Do we today feel empty and dry? Maybe there's a reason for it. God orders drought on lives to bring people back to Him. We may think that's not fair, but what a beautiful picture of grace. That God, even in our weakness, even in our disobedience, even in our adulterous behavior towards Him, He brings drought to point His people back in the right direction to Him, to bring them back to Him. Consider your ways. Look at your surroundings. What is life like? And Paul reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13 that we are temples. We have Christ dwelling with us. We should examine ourselves and test ourselves in that. Consider your ways. What is the condition of your temple? What is the condition of God's house? Take a look in the mirror and reflect on that. Like James says in James 1, 23-25, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now let me be clear. The result of seeking God's kingdom first is not necessarily earthly prosperity. Not even large, successful churches. But God does promise His presence. It's not that God promises material blessings if you get His priorities straight. If you get your priorities straight, you actually become more and more and more satisfied in Christ than in stuff. Materialism is fleeting. But Christ is everlasting. Limitations tells us again, consider your ways. Lamentations 340, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. And that leads us to our final point this morning. If we are to build God's kingdom, we need to get to work. Godly sorrow is never an end to itself. It should always lead to a response of repentance and obedience. When we consider our ways, we can't just say there and say, woe is me. It should draw us to our knees in confession compelling us to obey and get to work that God has called us to do. Be doers of the word and not just hearers. To glorify God in our body as Paul would write in 1 Corinthians. See the result of Haggai's preaching was immediate. We see that in verse 12. They all recognized the voice of the Lord and they obeyed. They became aware of their sin and neglect in neglecting the temple and they repented and then they got to work. Their priorities were fixed. The text also reads that the people obeyed and they feared. We often try to explain that away, like, oh, fear of the Lord is just reverence and respect. And that's true, but there's more than that. There's an appropriate holy fear that falls on those who recognize God's commandments and the ways that they have fallen short of them. The people's reflection had led them to be fearful because they realized that God was just in judging them. They realized where they had messed up. And that resulted in repentance and obedience. And the people were obedient, they got to work, but it's so good that God didn't leave them on their own to finish the work of his kingdom. After all this, before they even started building, Haggai has another word from the Lord. and What is it? It says, the Lord says, I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. He brought his presence to the people, the presence that the people before were kind of indifferent about. They didn't even care about building the temple. They didn't care about having the presence of God with them. And now that their hearts were in the right direction, the Lord said, I will be with you. I am with you. What an encouragement. God will be with them as they rebuild the temple. God will be with them regardless of the opposition that might come their way. No matter what else will come their way, that is a promise. I am with you. It reminds us of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Haggai, God gives comfort through Haggai saying, I am with you to rebuild the temple. And Jesus gives comfort, I will be with you to rebuild the church, to build the church. God provides for his work and we we can have confidence in that. He is with those who put him first. The temple work begins. What a great story of divine prompting by the stirring and human response and responsibility in the working. And what's exciting is even though the oppression hasn't stopped, that that decree was still in place to stop building the temple. It hadn't been lifted. But the people got on building anyway. They stopped making excuses and they followed the word of the Lord. What's even more interesting is that their neighbors decided to press them again and say actually we don't want you to do that so they went to the king and say hey I thought these guys weren't supposed to work so King Darius looks into the archives to find out if that's true and what he finds is that Cyrus had actually let them go back in the first place so he says no leave them alone they can do the work that they have been able to do I want them to keep building and you know what the cost of building the temple is going to be paid by the royal treasury the people got to work with what they had and then God provided even more He provides for his work. People stopped making excuses and they got to work. And I wonder if today might be a day like that for us. To get our priorities straight. To stop making excuses and to follow God wholeheartedly as we partner with him in building his kingdom. Like we've said, our new, what we're calling our our mission here is reaching the region. To build his kingdom. It's not about a building. It's about reaching people for Christ. So let me close by saying this. The word of Haggai comes to people like you and me. They were on fire for God. They got to work right away. They were building, started building the temple, but they got distracted. They became complacent. They said it wasn't the right time. They were unsatisfied by the work they were doing. And the Lord came and said, What's the condition of my house? What's the condition of my work in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your lives? What are you doing to fulfill the purposes which you have been set aside by Christ? And he reminds us that he is with us. He is the one who stirs our hearts. So this passage is calling for believers to recommit to Christ, to set their priorities over again but maybe you're here this morning or maybe you're watching this morning and you don't know Jesus. And if that's you today, I ask the same question, to consider your ways. Think about your life. How are you living? How is that going for you? Do you find yourself feeling unsatisfied, dry, empty? Maybe you have been trying everything, but nothing seems to fill that void that you keep having. Well, if that's you today, then I have great news. The only thing that brings true satisfaction is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. To have him dwell within you. To receive Christ is to admit and repent your wrongdoing, that you are sinful, and believe that he came to pay the price for you on the cross. Because of that price, God now sees believers, people who trust in Jesus, through that sacrifice, not as sinners, but as children of God. And I challenge you, would you make that commitment this morning? Would you accept Jesus as your Savior? And if you're interested in doing that, please come see me after the service. We're to consider our ways, to take time and reflect. It's so important, yet in our busy schedules, we often fail to do it. So I'm going to provide you with an opportunity to do that this morning. We're going to close in a time of prayer and reflection, to consider our ways and to repent if we have mixed priorities. The psalmist in Psalm 139 wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. So I'm going to pray and give you guys time to ask God to search your hearts. Then I'll close in prayer. We're going to stand together after that and we are going to sing a song and we are going to rejoice. Because we're not just going to stay wallowing in our sin. We are going to obey God. God. Ask him to stir our hearts that we would get on with reaching the region. We would get on with building his kingdom. And what a joyous occasion it is when the people of God turn from their ways and obey him just like we see in Haggai. So we want to rejoice together in a closing song after that prayer. So I invite the worship team to come up and I invite you guys to join me in prayer now. Father, we thank you for your word for the instruction and guidance it gives us. God, we thank you for your presence that is with us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, forgive us when we take that for granted. And we want to take time now, Father, to quiet ourselves, to consider our ways, as the psalmist wrote, to search our hearts. And would you do that, Lord? Would you bring to our minds anything that you are not pleased with in our lives, Lord? Would you allow us to Turn from them. Give us strength to overpower those excuses and those temptations. So I ask that you would search our hearts now as we consider ways you would have us serve you. Lord, if you have brought things to our minds, would you forgive us for them? God, we want to be a people who serve you, who glorify you and we bring you praise, not only in lip service, but with our work as well, Lord, in building your kingdom. So as you did just with the remnant in Haggai's day, Lord, would you stir our spirits now that we might keep you as our top priority and we would do the work that you've called us to do in building your kingdom.